From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Diemer. Today on the show, we have our week in review with Mr. Scott Cipollina. And we have some listener emails. That's coming up on the Decrypt Daily. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. Today is Friday, April 15th, 2022. The time is 10.53 a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. First, I want to say happy Passover and happy Good Friday to everyone. Got some emails from listeners, and here we go. First, Matt says, Recently, you talked about how non-accredited investors are no longer able to earn interest on Celsius and BlockFi. However, are there companies that still are allowed to provide interest to non-accredited investors? Thanks, Matt. Matt, to answer your question, i got to be a little more specific on your email. You are no longer to be able to earn interest if you're a non-accredited investor, if you're American. So if you're not American, you can still be using Celsius and BlockFi and so on and so forth. So if you are an American, the way it works is that if you are already earning interest on Celsius and BlockFi, you can continue to earn interest on whatever is there in your account. If you want to move more money into your account, then you can't earn interest on that money. And if you take your money out of that account, you are losing the ability to earn interest because you can't put more money back into it. However, there are different apps out there where you can earn interest. Obviously, there's decentralized um, DeFi protocols that you can earn interest. There is Voyager, there's Nexo, and you can earn interest if you have GUSD, which is the Gemini stablecoin for the Gemini exchange, and you can earn interest there on Gemini. Uh, I don't know how long you'll be able to do that, and maybe it's changed already. But if BlockFi and Celsius are cutting off non-accredited U.S. investors, then you're probably going to get some roadblocks along the way, if not already, with these other places too. Gemini has always been kind of unique in the space, so I'm not too sure how it will unfold for them. But I'll still be cautious. And again, this is not financial advice or any other kind of trading advice. It's from what I know right now. Next, I have an email from Derek, and Derek said, Good morning, Matthew. First, I want to let you know I love the show. Thank you, Derek. I think you may have been misled by an article yesterday stating that the Bank of Canada is using or used quantum computing. At least to my understanding, that is a technology that has not been developed yet, and it would likely not be used by a central bank for calculations. Unfortunately, it's late in my time zone, and I don't want to be a keyboard warrior at you. I just wanted to bring that to your attention. I'm happy to be wrong, though, because it would mean we just hit a new technological revolution. Also, if quantum computing is true, crypto is no longer safe. Fingers crossed. Derek, thank you for that. I don't know how accurate that is, that they're using quantum computing for these calculations and what kind of, again, we don't know how what state these quantum computers are in. To say that it's a technology that hasn't yet been developed is absolutely wrong. 
there is quantum computing out there. Um, there you can Google it right now and look at some of these amazing machines that are out there uh, all over the world. If people are trying to work on it, they're trying to get the computational power up. Again, I haven't looked into this uh, for about three or four years. Quantum computing uh, three or four years ago wasn't nowhere near the ability to even rival P- PCs. But in three or four years, a lot could have changed. And again, I'm not too sure. But to say that it is a technology that hasn't been developed yet, that is 100% wrong. It has been developed. It is being used. The quantum computers are out there. They're just not good at anything yet. And this could have changed that. And then again, I don't know about all the parameters involved with this uh, proof of concept. However, it's quantum computers to exist. And by the way, crypto is no longer safe. Uh, again, again, crypto and the encryption that crypto uses is massive just huge like the data the numbers the probabilities is just amazingly massively huge and we're talking about or on orders of the scale of how many atoms there are in the known or observable universe that's how big of numbers we're talking about and there are people who are developing quantum resistant algorithms out there and they've been doing that for the past years so i am very sure that if somebody is developing quantum computers there are algorithms out there already in place to be able to move over, like maybe even Bitcoin would have to move over to a quantum resistant algorithm if that is the case. And, and people are developing that. And let's just hope that they do move those uh, algorithms over, those encryptions or that security methods over before there is a computer that takes the leap. Because I was talking to my friend yesterday, that's how technology goes. It's like, it's not really that gradual. You're not saying like, oh, something progresses very steadily through this, you know, <laughs> quantum computers. You could predict how quantum computers are going to, and their computational power in the future. Usually it's like, okay, they're doing this much computations at this point, And then there's a huge breakthrough. And then they're just leaps and bounds above what they were doing. And that's what I'm worried about. Thank you for writing in, Derek. And lastly, Andy wrote in and said, Hey, Matthew, I want to let you know about your coin of the day on April 7th. Step in. I actually think it's an awesome project. I started after listening to your show. And just today, I netted $34 from walking since I've done a deep dive and people are getting $500 for a minimum 50-minute run. I just wanted to let you know your coin of the day segment led to an awesome find. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Andy, well, that's pretty cool. Thank you very much that I will keep doing coin of the day because it may lead to an awesome find. And the fact that you made $34 from walking, that's amazing. I'm going to have to check that out. But not before we check out those crypto prices. And it is 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And we have Bitcoin sitting at $40,573, up 0.3% in 24, still down 6.9% in 7. Ethereum is at 3042 pretty much even in 24. Teller's number three. Binance Coin is at 417, up 0.7% in 24. And USDC is number five. Running off the top 10, we have XRP, Solana, Cardano, Terra Luna, and Avalanche. Total market cap, we're at 1.88 trillion, pretty much even from yesterday. A BTC dominance of 41% and an F dominance of 19.4. And we're going to move into the conversation with writer from Decrypt, Scott Cipollina. We're going to talk about this week's biggest stories. Enjoy. If you guys don't hear Scott Cipollina behind the camera right now, giggling, giggling. Good, good. Welcome to the show, Scott Cipollina, for our week in review. 
Thanks for having me, Matthew. Well, so I just wanted to just know, tell everybody what happened. We already recorded a, like a 20 minute show and there's so many edits throughout the whole thing. We had to start over again. And Scott, for some reason, if you you're in the UK, yes, it's going to take away from the magic of the show. Yeah, Scott, listen, I am very transparent with my listeners and we have to tell them <laughs> about the dryer incident. Your dryer wouldn't oh stop beeping no, 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 no. because for some reason in the UK, you can't open your dryer until it's done drying. Uh, that is something an American. This is why we are the land of freedom, my friend, oh, <laughs> because for some reason you guys needed to have a lock on your dryer and you couldn't open your clothes <laughs> until they were dry. But why, why would you want to open your dryer? before they would before the clothes were dry would you like halfway through no i want these damp what's why would what's that functionality for no i want to walk out with some damp clothes today well you also don't want to over dry your clothes so how do you know your your clothes are gonna be over dried and you know what sometimes you want to take them out just before they're dry hang them on a little hanger because you don't want your clothes to start getting faded and shrunk and stuff like that scott it's obvious you are you are just you are not on the level of clothes drying by that I am, but uh, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. What's that, what's that phrase about English people and American people that are joined by a language, but they're separated by, yeah, this is a culture shock moment between America and the UK, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I, I, want, I want everybody to understand. <laughs> I, I want everybody to give their opinion here. Matthew Aaron at Decrypt.co. Let me know what you think. Should locks be on dryers or not? Do you think this is a normal thing? And Scott, now that we're starting a half hour late in the show, thank you for being here. Thanks for the weekend review. Uh, we have some things to go over today. Uh, first is going to be obviously uh, Twitter and Musk. We have Amazon yes. crypto and NFTs, and we have the Ronin hack. And we know who hacked the Ronin hack, uh, which was, you know, 600 and what, $27 million gone. And we That's have some money. It was a lot of money. And we, we know a little bit about that. First, let's start with Twitter and Musk. Tell us what's been happening with Twitter, Musk throughout this week. Yep. So, um, well, I suppose the top line surrounding Elon Musk and Twitter is that Musk has offered to buy 100% of Twitter stock um, following his earlier purchase of 9.2% um, of, of Twitter stock, which he made uh, a few weeks back. Um, and really, it's, you know, it's, <clears throat> well, just to read off uh, a section of the SEC filing where the offer was disclosed, Musk said that his offer is his best and final offer. And if it wasn't to be accepted, he would need to reconsider his position as a shareholder of Twitter. He also went on to add that he believed the social media platform had extraordinary potential and that he was the person to unlock it. Um, so again, this is the latest episode in like a long running series of, of sagas between, between Musk and Twitter. Um, you know, most recently it sort of began when Musk ran a survey, ironically on Twitter, about whether or not Twitter adhered to the principles of free speech. Uh, about 2 million people responded to that survey and 70% of them said that they did not believe that Twitter adhered to the principles of free speech. Um, eventually, the news came along that he had bought 9.2% of Twitter stock. Uh, there was talk very briefly about him joining the board. Um, and then Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal said that that was no longer going to be the case. Elon had told him that that was not in his plans anymore. Um, and really, you know, a lot of it's, it's quite a political story more than anything, because um you know, Musk, by all you know, intents and purposes, seems to be convinced that Twitter has this untapped potential to facilitate free speech and free discussion that it's currently not tapping into and not fulfilling. And he believes that he's the person to make that happen. Um, so, yeah, it's an ongoing story. Obviously, it'll be very interesting to see what comes of his offer. Some of Twitter's existing shareholders have already communicated that they are not going to be accepting that offer. Um, and we'll see what comes of it next. Uh, you know, the cliche that journalists, or at least that I always like to try and avoid is time will tell, but I think it's particularly 
suitable in this context because time will tell. We have to wait and see what comes of this. Uh, and a, an interesting segue, I think, for me would be that ultimately if Musk does not purchase 100% of Twitter, um, does this spur on some other um, bids from other parties down the line? That would be interesting too. I want to just fill in a, a couple of things for that. And uh, uh, first, you know, I think everybody sees it the same way is uh, Musk saying that if I don't buy 100% of Twitter, I'm not going to be, or I'm going to reconsider my position as a shareholder it means I'm going to dump on you. <laughs> and he holds, you know, quite a bit. And that's going to be a hell of a, a hell of a dump. But going back to, uh, I think that Musk was thinking that being part of the board, he can, uh, you know, direct some decisions of the board. And it looks as though maybe in my, and this is all speculation, I'm not there. It looks like the board was really pushing back on some things you could do. Being part of the board, you are capped at how much, how many shares you can hold. And it's something like 14 plus percent of the company. I think Musk was really trying to gain a huge portion of uh, the, the controlling shares, and, and then he, that would cap him out, maybe something he didn't know going into it, or, or if he did and thought that he could work with the board a little better. But the board right now, with Musk, even though he is the largest shareholder, still will have to convince the majority of the shares um, to you know do things that he want to, wants to do. And so it's more of a negotiation than a dictation. I think Musk just wants to go in there and, you know, and bull, bull it up and you know, really change some things. Uh, also being part of the board, you would, he would have to sign, you know, different agreements like, you know, an NDA can't talk about internal workings and probably can't tweet like he usually is tweeting about different things and suggestions about Twitter. Uh, so they were really going to put some like, uh, I guess, handcuffs on him or at least some censorship uh, for lack of a better word on what he could do um, and some controls on what he can do. And I don't think he liked that. So he's just like, you know what, I'm just going to buy the company. Musk just tweeted a little bit ago, a report by Goldman Sachs that looks at Twitter going down um, in the next 12 months in share price uh, to $30 at the end of 12 months. Uh, right now, uh, you know, Musk made the offer of 40, I'm sorry, 5420, uh, which is 20% more than, you know, it's currently trading at. And which I think is a, a pretty a pretty good offer. I don't know what the other shareholders think, but you know, just by announcing that he was going to that he was a shareholder, you know, jumped the price. And so shareholders already are making out from this. They're already going to get you know uh, must offer to buy with twenty percent more on top of that. Um, and then if he dumps on every plus, you know, the predictions from Goldman Sachs, what he's doing is trying to make the case that hey, shareholders, do you want a fifty percent haircut now? Um, by by not selling to me, or do you want to make you know the money that I'm offering you right now? And I think that this is, and we discussed this uh, on our our warm up to this episode. Is is it's not? I I think it's interesting that this whole thing is being played out so. Um, and I use the word transparent, uh, but you used a better word. You said public, and we don't usually see this kind of negotiation, this kind of I guess uh, corporate fights out on open. It's always usually behind closed doors uh, with lawyers or board members or phone calls or, or whatever. Um, now we're seeing this out in the open. And I think that's quite amazing. Yeah, it's um, it's certainly, you know, against the grain when it comes to some of these big decisions and negotiating processes. Um, but again, I think it's actually just part and parcel of what Elon Musk is like. We've seen many times that he's been very public about his opinions on all sorts of matters on Twitter, um, not least, you know, cryptocurrencies and, and the markets that we cover, we've seen many times that he has, you know, tweeted something about Dogecoin or something about Bitcoin, and it's pumped the price. Um, and there's always been some speculation about the, you know, the ramifications about those statements and, and articulations that Musk puts on Twitter. Uh, but there's actually been some research that has found quite, you know, pretty coherently and pretty, uh, you know, cemented the, the, the point home quite, quite well. 
that his tweets do move markets and, and have all sorts of um, political impact. We, we've, you know, we, we saw it actually just, um, you know, at the point of the offer um, hitting the headlines and the news breaking, everybody was talking about this on Twitter. This was a kind of story that sort of just um, transcended people's beats and people's focuses. Every media outlet was, was, was covering this story. It was a little bit, you mentioned on our, on our warm-up show um, about how it was a little bit akin to, to Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, that everybody you've seen, you seemingly just couldn't escape the story for a while. And I think that that's true of pretty much everything that Elon does. And this is certainly no exception. Well, the board is also, um, I'm sorry, the shareholders are also making filing complaints with the SEC saying that Musk did not timely uh, tell people that he was buying these shares, which, uh, which as we know, because he mentioned that he's buying these shares, pumped the price. Uh, so he was able to artificially, this is what they say, this that they are alleging that he can, by not announcing, he kept the price low so he can buy in at a lower price and not uh, tell people he's buying the shares when the price was in, in this. They said it was not fair that they didn't know that this was happening. And so they could buy it at a lower price as well. So which is quite, quite interesting. I guess the biggest question is, is two things. And this is what I really want to get into is. Do you think. OK, we can admit that if Musk is in control of Twitter, it will be different. Do you think it will be better? That's the first question. And second, how do you think that this would impact the crypto space uh, and Bitcoin or Dogecoin? And, and how do you think that it do you think it will be a net positive for that the, the, the crypto space? I think it's, it's quite difficult to answer both those questions. I think the point that I would make um, with regard to whether or not Twitter would be a better place if it was um, wholly held by Elon Musk um, would be that it's not much of a departure of what we've seen with traditional media. There are many media outlets um, and many other companies that people interact with every day that are already owned by billionaires. And one thing that I found or that I, that I, that I sensed a little bit from the reaction was that it would be terrible for Twitter to uniquely be held by a billionaire. And I think that that was, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, not necessarily getting into the, the, you know, the ramifications of that independently of anything else, but it's actually not that uncommon. There are many other organizations and many other places where people receive their information that are already owned by billionaires. Um, so I, I, that was a curious um, narrative slash point slash dynamic that I was reading into thinking, you know, with a little bit of confusion, um, because I don't think that if this were to happen, it would necessarily be that unique um, when you look at the wide array of, of, of places that people digest information from. Um, so that's one point I'd like to make, whether or not it would be better. To be completely honest, I don't think anybody can answer that question because it would depend completely on what Elon does and we don't know what Elon will do. So I don't know um, if, if anyone can, can say with any surety or certainty whether or not it would be a good or a bad thing. Um, you know, people can run off their opinions of Elon Musk and then, you know, use them to, to speculate. That's one thing, but I don't think anyone can say anything with certainty until, you know, if and when this were to occur, we can then judge the actions rather than anything else. Um, but, you know, that is you know, not to say that Twitter doesn't have its significant problems already. We, we, everybody is very well aware of um, all sorts of issues that Twitter continues to wrestle with, be it misinformation uh, or disinformation or content moderation. You know, all those things are you know, very closely related to each other and Twitter has struggled with them in the past. Um, so, you know, I think like, like anybody else, I would like to see Twitter do a better job dealing with those things. Um, 
But again, whether or not that would be something that would be best served by Elon Musk owning 100% of the company or not is, is not something I think that anyone can say with certainty about because it hasn't happened yet and there's no actions for us to judge it on. Um, and then secondly, about um, whether or not this would benefit the crypto industry, again, I think the same answer is true. I don't think that, you know, sorry if it's not very, a very entertaining point to make, but I don't think anyone can really make any any you know substantial points on that front because we ultimately don't know what elon musk intends for twitter moving from one um actually how moving from the richest person in the world to the company started by the second richest person in the world and i bet you that hurts bezos quite a bit um amazon amazon's uh, new ceo made a statement about crypto and they said that they are not going to accept crypto payments anytime soon, and which was not a shock to anybody, but a disappointment at the same time. Um, everybody always, you know, thought that the biggest uh, online retailer and probably the biggest retailer uh, in, in the US or at least the world almost, um, probably not the world, but I don't know. I'm just, you know, now I'm just throwing stuff out there. It would would take crypto because it, it make it would make sense that I could pay with Bitcoin or, or you know, whatever, you know, on Amazon to buy my Amazon wares and get my overnight or 24 hour or actually in some cases you can get your stuff in three hours. And everybody was saying like this would be like huge for adoption. Well, they, they, shut that down what they did do is is that actually correct grammar what they did do um what they <laughs> yeah what they did do <laughs> is they said that it's possible that they will be selling nfts on amazon yeah. and i think that and this is going straight into opinion there's not much more to say about that news i mean that's pretty cut and dry here's our here's opinion time I think it's kind of like having my cake and eating it too. It's like, oh, hey, we don't want to take crypto. We don't want to do anything, but hey, but you can buy and sell NFTs. And I think that's just like, that's kind of not the point and kind of like a little grift. What do you think? Well, I see the point, but I think that it's quite, you can as well to play devil's advocate. I think that you can separate the two rather well. And the reason for that is because, you know, if, 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 um, you go back to the first point that, that the Amazon CEO, Andy Jassy said, which was that Amazon is, is not close to adding crypto as a payment mechanism soon. Um, that could purely be down to the fact that he believes, like many other people believe, that cryptocurrencies are not a very good medium for exchange, that they don't function um, as mediums of exchange very well. And if that's their belief, then it obviously stands to reason that they're not very eager to um, facilitate that payment option. That's not necessarily you know, if you, have, if you hold that opinion, that doesn't necessarily disqualify you from being interested in NFTs. And if you would like to sell NFTs, because you believe like many other household brands, like I'm thinking of Visa, for example, Budweiser for another, uh, that have jumped on the NFT bandwagon because they believe the NFT movement to be some sort of, um, you know, cultural watershed moment of this generation that's here to stay. Um, I think that you can hold both of those opinions consistently and not necessarily be contradictory. So that might be his thinking. That's what I thought when I wrote the story. Perhaps he believes that cryptocurrencies aren't a very good medium for exchange, but he believes in the cultural power of NFTs, as we've seen for the last X amount of months over the last year. I, so. can, can I replace uh, the the word or, or the statement cultural power of N NFTs with the earning potential of NFTs? We saw that there's a yeah, lot of yeah, money yeah. In yes. NFTs, but the cultural yeah. power, I think, is a cop out to say, "Hey, this is a this is a money grab, and we want to be part of people cool. purchasing NFTs." Yeah, yeah, we've we've seen we've seen so many companies, you know, use that kind of phraseology before. Cultural power, um, uh, historic moment, um, fundamentally changing the world of art. Uh, but you know, 
you'd be forgiven. You wouldn't. You'd be forgiven for thinking that ultimately it could be, as you say, a bit of a money grab. And um, and, and honestly, you know what? I, I'd be okay to say, hey, that that they are part of that ethos. And I'm, I would say that I want to see what they roll out with. Are they platforming? Um, certain say uh, artists or, or or you know whatever or projects that is moving that forward you know um, which I which is basically what a lot of these platforms have been doing is allowing the platform for uh, different artists uh, different creators and they have been you know rising up with their art and their their you know their uh, passion uh, and making a living off of this because of these platforms now. Right now, what I, it looks like is they're like, I'm going to get into NFTs because we just want, we see that there's billions of dollars to be made. Um, but I want to see what they do when it comes to the artists, what, how they allow them this, this platform and how they can make it an open, competitive, uh, you know, merit based system that isn't going to be bogged down by the Amazon algorithm or the Amazon. Uh, choice picks uh, with that little, you remember how they have that little Amazon chat tag on the top, which could be on the NFTs now. Like, how is this going? I want to see how open and how actually supportive it is to artists, individuals, and the industry. I mean, yeah, um, it, all down the line, this could conceivably be things that we see Amazon do. Um, but, you know, I think a, a point uh, to make here was that he was, um, Jassy was particularly sort of non-committal. The, the phrase that he used was that Amazon could eventually sell NFTs um, and that he thought it was, I quote, possible down the road. So that is, you know, that, that's a that's that's a, a really non-committal um, set of words right there. So this could very well never happen. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that the broader NFT industry, as you've been discussing there as well, um, won't have pull, um, you know, in corporate finance or, or in some of the world's largest corporations, as we've already seen, Amazon notwithstanding. All right, we've been waffling on about these two subjects for quite some time. Uh, last one I want you to tell us is about the Ronin hack. Tell us about the news because this was breaking. I just learned about it from you about uh, a half hour ago. So what is, what's going on? Well, just a little bit of background. A, at the time, as it was covered in late March, a hacker had drained $622 million from Axie Infinity's um, Ronin network, the Ethereum sidechain of, of Axie Infinity. Um, and essentially the Ronin bridge was, was, was drained via the use of what was reported as hacked private keys. Um, and you know, that's obviously a very large number, 622. Um, it's, it's not necessarily surprising that we've seen a hack in the, in the crypto space. This seems to happen every week, but, um, the number was obviously the, 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 uh, the most newsworthy part of, of that story as it was breaking in late March. However, since then, um, and I would say more interestingly, the, 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 the most interesting point about this ongoing story is that the U.S. Treasury has connected or identified North Korean hackers to the exploit that happened in late March. Um, and that, I think, is particularly interesting because the um, Ethereum wallet address that has been added to its sanctions list was tied to North Korea's Lazarus Group, which is infamous as one of the most skilled um, hacking groups coming out of North Korea. And also, if you take a little bit of a, a more broad side view, North Korea's um, illicit crypto activity, be it through hacking or ransomware or anything else, is, is really well developed. Um, last year, there was a, a UN report that found that nuclear uh, North Korea's nuclear um, ballistics program had actually been part financed through the use of cryptocurrencies before. And obviously, in the last you know weeks and months, we've 
we've been chiefly concerned about the ways in which cryptocurrencies can help rogue states, um, you know, line their pockets basically in one way or another. Um, you know, ransomware being being a, a chief sort of vehicle for that kind of activity. Um, so I think it's a really important uh, point. Uh, I think it's the most interesting part of the story because it shows um, that you know there is a very serious problem here within the industry that rogue states like North Korea can can pivot to this industry and and you know really make a, a, a good amount of money. Yeah, I mean, I think as I said, you know, we can talk about this in more depth now, of course, in the next few minutes. But I think that it's 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 particularly interesting coming off the back of that UN report that I that I cite frequently in some of my stories which found that North Korea's nuclear program is part financed by cryptocurrency. That is one of the one of the um, you know, most serious international security threats that, that the world is facing today. And um, we have an angle on that story in our industry. I guess there's two ways to look at this after I heard about this. And the first one is a hack is a hack. If it's coming from North Korea, if it's coming from a dude in his basement sitting in, I don't know, uh, Tennessee, it, it, a hack is a hack. And the the crypto companies, bridges, protocols, uh, what DAO, whatever they are, uh, they we have been seeing that this just happens over and over and over and over again with no either insurance, with no either um, open sourced, I guess, uh, protocol or or code to allow for you know a, a, a bunch of people to audit to make sure that everything is going good before you know these problems happen. And so we just keep seeing this is an issue. And I almost, it's not just negligent. It's almost on purpose anymore that these vulnerabilities are in place. And now we just see that actors, bad actors such as you know North Korea, understand that this incompetence is present. And now they understand that they can get a billion dollars from this incompetence. And it is persistent and continuous within these um, within the space for the most part. And I think that it is just egregiously, I, I, I can't think of a bit of the biggest word I could say, but this is honestly moving into the criminal because of this um, incompetence. Huh? Uh, Firmly. Oh, I, yeah, I thought you meant on the part of, of, of the North Korean hackers. Uh, oh, I mean, well, both. I, the hacker is, yeah. is, is criminal, and but also like the, the, the lack of care that is being put into these protocols that are all being hacked all the damn time. Um, and we've seen this across the protocols and across the board. So that's the first one. The other one is we do have a problem with North Korea and them beginning funded. I remember last year before the poly network um, hack made headlines. And that was another $600 million hack just prior to that story breaking must have been about a week or so before that happened. There was a study that came out that I covered, which found that to date in the year in 2021, about $474 million had been lost um, through hacks across the decentralized finance space. And that was a pretty big number. And I was, I thought this is a really good story. And then just days after, there was one hack that dwarfed all of those earnings from the year to date, um, you know, by over $100 million comfortably over $100 million. And at the time, you know, in the immediate aftermath of that hack, the Poly Network went to Twitter and simply asked for the hacker in question to return the funds. That's all that they had. They had no other recourse uh, to try and protect user funds or anything of the sort at the time. We've seen, you know, that that that's a, that, that was one particular story that obviously given the, the figure, it was the biggest hack at the time in the history of DeFi. It really laid bare 
you know, the, the really significant pitfalls of this industry where, yes, of course, you know, if you're ideologically inclined to like the ideas of libertarianism and you don't like the ideas of an overbearing government or of third party intermediaries, then peer-to-peer -peer trading and decentralized finance naturally would appeal to you. What we have seen repeatedly is the fact that, you know, when you do away with these three third party intermediaries, yes, of course, you eliminate the risks associated with those third party intermediaries. But what risks are put in place to substitute from them? And really, ultimately, there are technology risks. This is a point, actually, that um, IOSCO, which is a, an international organization of securities regulators, made recently, um, which is that, you know, the, the wider world of decentralized finance might do away with, with risks um, introduced by third party intermediaries, but they introduce a lot of technical risks. Uh, a lot of folks just simply don't understand. Yes, it's true. It's you know, there's there's no there's no two ways around it. It it's it's staring us all in the face. That's true. Um, but the reason why I think this is a particularly newsworthy angle to that wider narrative is because it's incorporating a very serious, incredibly serious international security risk that everybody should be concerned with: North Korea's nuclear ballistics program. You know, financing of of of, of North Korean regime pockets more generally. So yeah, th there's not much more to say on that, I don't think. I think that, you know, it's just the latest in an incredibly long line of, of, of evidence that decentralized finance world or the crypto world more generally is still dealing with some really significant problems. And if there's not much more to say, we're going to end it right here. Scott Chapelina, thank you for coming on this week in review, talking about these uh, issues. And um, I hope you have fun folding your laundry later. <laughs> thank you so much, Matthew. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. My name is Matthew Deemer, and I will see you tomorrow with our weekend update. And until then, happy hodling, everyone. <laughs>